Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Many of you, I assume, are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan recorded for us in Luke chapter 10, a story that is often misunderstood and made out to be nothing more at times than a, than a lesson on how to treat other people, when it's really intended to demonstrate to, in this case, the, the lawyer or the so-called expert in the Mosaic Law who had asked Jesus who his neighbor was, uh, really in an attempt to justify himself. The story is really intended to, to, to show him that he had failed miserably to love God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, with all of his mind, and to love his neighbor as he loved himself. Nevertheless, the story that Jesus tells does give us a, an example of the kind of love, in fact, it sets the standard for the kind of perfect and persistent love that we are to have for one another. And not just our friends or our fellow Christians, but even our enemies. In that particular text, we see this supreme kind of love illustrated for us as the Samaritan man first sees the wounded and beaten victim, but then goes on to, to feel compassion for him, and the scripture goes on and tells us that he, he eventually bandaged this individual's wounds, he takes him to an inn, cares for him overnight, and then leaves the next morning, but not before leaving enough money with the innkeeper to cover the man's stay for up to two months. And then basically, on top of that, leaves the innkeeper with a promise that, that when he returns, that if that's not enough money, if that's, those aren't enough resources to care for this man, that when he returns, he would make up the difference. This is the love of God, Jesus says. And this is what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you have mercy... And you show mercy even to those who hate you. Mercy in action. A demonstration of love that knows no qualifications. A love without limits. A love without boundaries. A display of amazing generosity. Being gracious and kind, not just to those that you know well, but to those you only know from a distance. This is the love of God. A loyal love, a faithful love, a love that is not capricious, a love that is, is not shaky. This is what the Bible teaches, that God loves us genuinely, He loves us immutably, He loves us loyally as His people, that, that He is for us and will never cease to be for us. And the Bible also tells us that our calling as children of God is to reflect that reality. Grounded in our love for God who loved us first, we are to be kind, to feel compassion and to show mercy to others, to be loyal and committed in our relationships, to be faithful, to love to the end. But too often we fail, right? We fail in this area. 
In the broader evangelical world today, the marketing of the church has taught us to see ourselves as primarily consumers. Everybody has their own set of what they're looking for in a church. Typically, doctrine is pretty low on that list. When a church doesn't meet a person's shifting needs, they not only change churches, but often their denominations and sometimes even their theological convictions. No more loyal to their church family than their favorite snack food. The promise of more vital youth programs, a more entertaining preacher, a more talented praise band encourages individuals to wander from the fold and from fold to fold like lost and confused sheep. Of course, in the Reformed world, we tend to be slightly more loyal to our doctrine. In fact, we define ourselves by our doctrine. We are loyal to our theological roots, but what we often lack is commitment to one another. Our loyalty to propositions, good, sound, biblical propositions, often causes us to lose sight of the good, sound, biblical command that we love one another. So we, we split up our churches, we, we walk around waiting for someone to offend us, We break our relationships over what we claim are important and vital theological matters when more often than not, they are nothing more than petty personal preferences. Sometimes we make an assumption that because we are well-read or or perhaps because we know a lot about the Scriptures or, or maybe because we've simply been a Christian for a certain number of years, a certain amount of time, we make the assumption that we're godly We make the assumption that we are mature in the faith, but are we becoming a more merciful people? Do we show more pity or less pity? Do we have concern for all of God's sheep or only the ones that we think deserve our attention? Is our love loyal? Our kindness dependable? and our affection committed. Well, to challenge ourselves in this area, I want us to look together at this particular chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 9, a passage of Scripture that tells us about one of the high points, honestly, one of the high points in King David's life. Uh, Now, in chapter 11 of Uh, 2 Samuel, we read about the more familiar story to most of us, that story of David's descent into immorality, as well as the murderous uh, cover-up that followed. But just two chapters before the account of David's adultery with Bathsheba, we witness David at a time of great success, having captured the affection and the loyalty of his nation. At this point, he's roughly 20 or so years into his 40 year reign as Israel's king, and things are, are going pretty well, going pretty well for him and for the country. He is on top militarily, he is prospering financially, and amazingly, though he was at the highest point of his regal authority and glory, he was still mindful of the duty of gratitude and loving fidelity. Chapter 8 records a series of David's military triumphs, 
But it's clear that David wasn't simply a, a ruler with vision and with might. He was a shepherd. He was a shepherd with a heart concern for his people. In times of rest, David thought of, of work that he could do, and in, and in success, he thought of God and God's goodness to him. God had been with David to protect his life. God had been with David to prosper his service. He had made David's name great. God had given David victories against his enemies, victories that expanded Israel's borders, victories that meant peace and safety for the people of Israel, victories that enriched the treasury of the Lord so that the material would be available for Solomon to one day build the temple. You'll notice back there in chapter 8, verse 6, and even in verse 14, it says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Winning battles and effectively managing the, affair, the affairs of a growing and expanding nation. You'll notice in verse 15, it says this of chapter 8, So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. So this is the scene. This is the backdrop as we approach one of the most touching, one of the most warm-hearted chapters in the Old Testament. A chapter that in great detail describes for us how God's grace, how God's mercy and his love flowed through David to an undeserving man. And as we examine chapter 9, we we can't help but notice a a couple of things. One is the fact that David is now established as king of Israel with a reference to him being the king 11 times in these 13 verses. We also notice the repetition of the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated, if you have an ESV, it's translated there as kindness. So please follow along as I read this. This will be from the the English Standard Version, chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Tseba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Tseba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Tseba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Tseba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Seba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Seba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now you'll notice that the passage begins in verse 1 with the words and, or be translated as then, and David said. Then in verse 5 we find, then King David sent. And then finally in verse 9, then the king called. So we have this conjunction at the front of these verses that sort of helps to move the, the, the narrative along and helps us to break down what is here. That is to say that there's really, I think, three sections that we need to think about this morning. And we'll look at it from this angle, the inquiry of the king, the summons of the king, and the instructions of the king. Now, remember, David is, is firmly established as, king, as Israel's king, and it's, and it's taken 20 years for David to get to this point. But it's also important to keep in mind that it's been 20 years since his predecessor, King Saul, and three of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, fell on the fatal field of Gilboa. Then there was another son. The scripture tells us there was a son that Saul had, Ishbosheth, who was murdered after his failed attempt to set up a rival kingdom. And so the only children left were Saul's daughters and some, some sons by a concubine. And if we agree with a number of, of Bible students who, who believe that the events that actually occur later in the Second Samuel, in Second Samuel chapter 21, the first nine verses there, if we believe that the events of Second Samuel 21 took place during this two to three year period when the men of Israel were fighting for their nation's survival, the events for, described for us in chapter 8 of Second Samuel, then not only were the sons of Saul, which he had with his wife, dead, but his two other sons by his concubine and five of his grandsons had also been executed by the Gibeonites by this point in time. That is to say, Saul's family has been nearly obliterated, which is what sets up the events of chapter 9. So let's look first at the inquiry of the king in verses 1 to 4, which after all that, that David had suffered at the hands of Saul is, is amazing and reveals something about David that might easily be overlooked. Again, verse 1 says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And no sooner does David, David verbalize his thoughts that he sends messengers to search out the true state of affairs. And after much searching, David's messengers locate a former high-ranking servant named Tseba, a man who had served in Saul's play, palace at uh, Gibeah, perhaps as an estate manager, 
probably not a, a man motivated by spiritual principles, but a prosperous man who was now living with his family in, in Transjordan, beyond the Jordan. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. You can easily imagine the tension, right, in the atmosphere. The king says, verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in his feet. As if to make this this descendant of Saul as insignificant and anonymous as possible. So rather than mentioning at this point the, the name of the man, he just focuses in primarily on this man's condition. Well, in verses... Verse 3 and verse 13, we learn about this, what this man's condition is. We are told that in those verses that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. And the story of how this happened is found uh, just a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And what we learn there is that Mephibosheth was only five years old when news came that his grandfather, King Saul, as well as his own father, Jonathan, had been killed in battle. And as a young boy, Mephibosheth had a nurse, and this nurse loved him, this nurse looked after him, and when the report came that Saul and, John, Saul and Jonathan had been killed, to protect Mephibosheth, this nurse evidently scoops Mephibosheth up and carries him quickly out of the house, probably running across fields and difficult terrain, and in the chaos and in, and in the rush of all that, something tragically happened. Maybe she, she dropped him, or perhaps he fell, or, or maybe rolled down an embankment or something. Uh, but whatever the case, he broke both of his ankles or his feet. And of course, in those days, there were no orthopedic surgeons, right? They didn't have orthopedic surgeons to set, reset those, those broken bones. Plus, they're on the run. They're, they're fearing for their very lives. And so consequently, the boy's ankles healed in such a way that that made him a, essentially a bilateral cripple for the rest of his life, most likely dependent on crutches or something like that. So you, you, you keep, this, keep this in your mind. Mephibosheth was, was five years old when this tragedy occurred. But now, when we get to 2 Samuel 9, he's close to 25 years old. And has a young son, the scripture tells us in this very chapter, that he has a young son of his own. So verse 3, Ziba answers David as if, as if he's saying to David, Yes, there is a descendant of Saul, but he's worthless to you. Uh, you don't need to know his name. <laughs> you just need to know about his condition because he's, he's not even worth your attention. There's no need to bother. No need to bother with him. He's not a threat. But David's motives are altogether different. 
Verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba, compelled to answer, said, said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Ammiel at Lodabar. Which in David's time was, was sort of like our modern day street address. So it's like when you're, you're in this place and you're in this person's house and this person's care. It was like I was saying, I, I, live at, I live at 1489 Holly Springs Road in Marietta, Georgia, 30062. So he essentially gives him this, this lo- location. And then what does David do with that? Well, David quickly sends an armed escort to load the bar to bring this man, this crippled man, Mephibosheth, to his court, which is no easy thing. I mean, Lodabar wasn't just right around the corner. In fact, it may have been some 60 to 70 miles from Jerusalem, situated east of the River Jordan on the border of Gad, near the southern end of the Sea of Kinnereth, or this, what we call the Sea of Galilee. And it's generally believed that this village was on the fringe. It was sort of described as this, this town that's on the fringe of civilization, way out there on the outskirts facing eastward, overlooking miles and miles and miles of barren and trackless desert. An insignificant place and home of Mephibosheth, who many believed was an insignificant person. Far away from the king, far away from Jerusalem, the place of blessing and peace and worship, living in the house of Makir, which means sold, living down in Lodabar, the place of no pasture and no bread. That leads us to the summons of the king in verses 5 to 8. Verse 5 says, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So, in spite, of, in spite of the close relationship that had, ex- had existed between David and Jonathan, it's unlikely that Mephibosheth had heard much of anything good about Israel's new king. But it's very likely that as he is being brought to the palace, that he is experiencing both fear and resentment at the summons. I mean, imagine... Imagine what went through Mephibosheth's mind when he heard the knock at the door. A servant of the king stands there and says to him, Come with us. King David wants to see you in Jerusalem. That must have been a long ride, right? Long ride back to Jerusalem. I mean, even if David's representatives shared with Mephibosheth that David's intentions were to bless him, do you really think that he honestly believed that? It's like a Geico commercial, right? If you are a survivor of the former regime, you get assassinated. That's just what you do. Right? I mean, it's like th- this is what happens when, when new regimes take over. They eliminate, right? We, we see this all through history. They get rid of the people that are associated with the former regime. So you can imagine what may have been going through Mephibosheth's mind at this point and what he felt. We know what he felt because the text tells us that David told 
Mephibosheth not to be afraid. So Mephibosheth probably assumed that he would be executed, not receive the kindness of the king. And once he arrives in Jerusalem, and as he's shown into David's presence, the contrast between the warrior king and the crippled grandson of Saul is glaring. The one is confident in the goodness of God to him. The other, though a prince from birth, has known only the bitterness of misfortune. You can almost see it. Mephibosheth shuffling. Shuffling toward David's throne, probably with the assistance of crutches. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid, paid homage, which, if you think about it, would have been particularly painful for a crippled man, right, to, to fling himself down in such fashion. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. But David senses this young man's fear, and he quickly reassures him. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Again, he prostrates himself before David, verse 8, and he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth compares himself to a dead dog, the the most humiliating image that he could have found in that cultural context, expressing the reality of his position Poor, destitute, helpless, a scavenger of sorts, completely dependent on David's mercy, and overwhelmed by David's kind and gracious words. But it wasn't just David's words that were gracious, it was also what followed. And at this point, David gives further instructions. So we have the instructions of the king in verses 9 down through the end of the chapter. Verse 9, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So the kindness, the kindness of, that David showed Mephibosheth was twofold. First, the text tells us that he restored to this man all the land that had, that had belonged to his grandfather. And second... He made him an inmate in his own house, right? An inmate of his own house with a place at his table, the same as if he had been one of his own sons. 
and that he might not be embarrassed with having the land to care for. Because what's the point, right? You give a guy that's crippled land, but he can't, he can't take care of the land. And so to, to, to avoid that embarrassment, David committed the charge of that land to Ziba, who was to bring to Mephibosheth the produce or its value. Therefore, every arrangement was made that could contribute to Mephibosheth's comfort. And not only did David look out for him, but in David's plan, Mephibosheth was was to also bring his entire household to Jerusalem, and the food from Saul's land was for their sustenance. This was the royal command. And to this command, Ziba responds, verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And the chapter sort of concludes by showing that David is as good as his word. So, it says, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Unbelievable. Incredible. Talk about mercy. Talk about grace. Talk about kindness. You talk about a love without limitations. A love that knows no qualifications. Mephibosheth goes from the obscurity of Lodabar to an honored place at court. Treated like one of David's own sons. Enjoying sweet communion, eating at David's table on a regular basis. Which, by the way, is a point that is so significant that it's mentioned four times. Four times we're we're, we're assured this is what happened. That he ate at David's table. Incredible. Amazing love, right? Amazing love. Now, it seems pretty obvious to me that this whole account is meant to show us that King David truly was a man after God's own heart. And the evidence of that is seen in his demonstration of faithful love, loyalty, and kindness. This is an exemplary situation in David's life. This is David, the merciful shepherd. So, in light of that, what are some things that we learn from this passage about the call on our lives to be merciful? Well, there are a few of them, I think, that are helpful for us. The first one is this. We might call it the effort of mercy. The effort of mercy. Of mercy. Simply put, showing mercy and loving people, whether they're friends or enemies, takes time and energy on our part. It means seeking people out, it means not waiting for people to come to us, it means sacrifice, it means being inconvenienced. 
It means making more than one attempt. It means not giving up. And mercy and kindness involve a cost. I mean, it did for David, right? It did for the Good Samaritan. And it should for us as well. The effort of mercy. Second is, we could add to that, the practicality of mercy. The practicality of mercy. That is to say that showing mercy and loving people often involves tangible needs and requires that we make practical arrangements to meet those needs. That we emulate David, who was full of common sense and had a grasp of the circumstance. For example, David didn't just restore Saul's land to Mephibosheth, but understood Mephibosheth's condition. So, that, so therefore, David called for Ziba and installed him as an overseer of the estate to work, to work it, to work that land for his new master's benefit. So practical wisdom should guide our mercifulness. And finally, we have to say something about the motives of mercy. The motives of mercy. And in King David's case, there were two. The first was his ancient oath to Jonathan. You'll notice there in verse 1 that he mentioned his desire to show kindness to any remaining descendants of Saul. And then notice this phrase, for Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. Which is a reference back to a covenant that was made between David and Jonathan some 20 years prior where they promised to look out for the children of the other party if something should happen to one or the other. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So David and Jonathan had this this deep friendship that was built on the concept of loyal love. This kindness that is emphasized in 2 Samuel 9. And though Jonathan had been dead for years, David was determined to fulfill his oath to his friend. But that wasn't the only motive. Because David's remarkable language and his questions to Ziba go even deeper in unfolding David's motives. When he speaks in verse 3 of showing the kindness of God. Showing the kindness of God. That is to say, David's purposed mercy wasn't simply about his covenant with Jonathan. It was also an echo of God's kindness to him. In other words, David was on top of the world. He was wealthy. He was influential. He was successful in many ways, but his elevation had not lifted him too high to see the old days of lowliness. His days as a shepherd boy. His days of fleeing from Saul, who wanted to kill him. Of experiencing God's deliverance, of walking with the Lord, of singing to the Lord. The days of testing and the days of preparation. For most people... Success makes them less reflective and less on guard against pride. For most people, power causes them to ignore advice 
and to take the credit. Their tendency is to sit back and to bask in the glory and not be as sensitive to the plight of others. But David knew that God had been his help. He knew that God had been merciful and kind and gracious to him. And he wanted to be like that. He wanted to be like that. He wanted to reflect that. Which anticipates the teaching of the New Testament, right? What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, verse 36? Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. See the connection? David's saying, listen, I have received this loyal love. I'm a recipient of grace. I'm a recipient of God's goodness and His kindness. And therefore, I want to be a conduit of God's goodness and kindness. This is why we are loyal. This is why we are kind. This is why we are merciful as Christians. Because God is merciful. God is merciful. And we were just like Mephibosheth, right? <laughs> Existing in, in, hopeless, in a hopeless condition. Basically selfish and lazy and, and lustful and proud and prone to anger and indifferent to the truth. Alienated. Living in fear of judgment. Powerless to save ourselves, only in a position to receive, but with nothing to give God that God needed. But God took the initiative, right? God took the initiative. I mean, after all, Mephibosheth wasn't looking for David, right? He was avoiding David. But David sought him out in the same way God has sought us out. God overcame our resistance. God defeated our anti-God arguments. He summoned us. He saved us. He changed us. He brought us into His presence. Grace, was the, 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 the writer says, grace taught our hearts to fear, but then it went on to relieve them, right? To relieve our fear. God did all that. Adoption, blessing, fellowship, communion, access, right? The very things that, Pastor Kohler has been preaching about for months in Romans. So that we would know his mercy. So that we would be a conduit of his mercy. Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, how are you doing in this area? How are you doing? Do you have a reputation for being a generous and gracious person? A person full of goodness. You know, your knowledge doesn't amount to much if it's not leading you to be more merciful. Your understanding of doctrine, your knowledge of the Word of God doesn't amount to very much if it's not moving you to be more loyal, more loving. Listen, we've all been in the position of a Mephibosheth in need of God's grace. We, we always were and we still are. We're still in need of God's favor. And we've all been given the opportunity to be like David to cultivate a heart for God, 
to extend mercy, to extend kindness, to give of every good thing even to our enemies. Now the reality is some of you don't know the Lord. Spiritually speaking, you're living in low devar, right? Living in fear of judgment. And if that's the case, this message is a call to your heart to come into the kindness of the grace of Jesus Christ. To heed the words to that old hymn, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So our, our desire, we, we plead with you to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ and His sacrifice for sinners, which includes me and includes you. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, time and time again, you've declared that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And time and time again, we have seen it, we have experienced it, we have tasted of it. Lord, for those of us who are your children, we confess, Lord, we confess to you that, that often, too often, our love has not been limitless, our loyalty has diminished, our kindness has not been dependable and persistent. Lord, would you cleanse our hearts? Lord, would, would you increase our love, our love for you and our love for others, and increase our faith? And for those, Lord, that might be here this morning that don't know Christ, that have not experienced your saving grace, may they humble themselves this morning and turn to Christ as their only hope. For we pray this in his name. Amen.